Hi, I'm Greg Laprete, Portfolio Manager at Water Island Capital. And today, I have the pleasure of speaking with two top advisors about how they are using alternatives in their client portfolios. First is Steve Tresnan from New York City, who utilizes our Water Island Capital Credit Opportunities Fund, ticker ACFIX, and Jeremiah Reithmiller from Wayne, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philly, who utilizes our arbitrage fund, ticker ARBNX. And today, the three of us will discuss what's happening in the markets, why it matters to your investment strategy, and we'll also talk about alternative investments, what they are, and how they might be used as part of a diversified portfolio. Great. So we thought it'd be fun today to start with just random trivia or facts about, about each of us. So this is Steve. I'll go first. You know, I think back on life, uh, I started playing guitar when I was 12 years old, and that's had a pretty profound effect on really my whole life since then, uh, in terms of the best friends I have now, my wife, how I met her, why I'm sitting here in front of you today. So without going into all those details, I guess the point is it's interesting, these other things you do in life that may not be your your main profession uh, or central focus can can have such a, a broad impact. I'm going to go a different direction. I'm drummer, um, but I'm I'm actually an undefeated axe thrower. Fun fact. Boom. Starting at the age of my first competition when I was 12. Uh, I've been in two subsequent events, one with my team here and others, uh, another one with friends. So three events, three wins. I'm going with it. That's like national, regional, national champion? Sure. <laughs> I, I'm a, I like to think of myself as a modern day Paul Bunyan. And yeah. obviously, if you're, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see me, but I at least have the beard to go with that that description. <laughs> yeah, you have a solid Paul Bunyan look going on. So. Uh, nice. That's great. Greg, so, what, what don't we know about you? I, I guess following the, the theme of starting things at 12 years old, um, I actually started riding... Uh, motorcycles, dirt bikes, motocross when I was 12. And uh, that journey uh, has taken me really through today. And I went from riding motocross through college and then getting into mountain bike racing. And then from there, of course, everybody said, well, you have to get a road bike to get in better shape. And so <laughs> next thing is I had a road bike and probably about 10 or 15 years of my life, um, just prior to kids, uh, I was traveling all over the country racing bikes. And uh, then, of course, I had kids and I got involved with a lot of travel sports and my bike collected a lot of dust and cobwebs. And I gained a couple of pounds, of course. And uh, now the kids are older. They're done with all their travel soccer and the like. And, and over the last year and a half or so, uh, I picked up the bike again and um, I'm riding quite a bit. And now that I don't have to commute so far, uh, I just have to commute to my basement currently. I've got about uh, an additional 15 hours a week. So it's been uh, very good for me as far as health and happiness. And my wife will probably say it's it's really helped our marriage because I'm out of the house for 15 hours a day. So it's all <laughs> Nicely good. done. Some, some bright spots, the pandemic. Yes. And uh, I just started my biking career in the basement uh, as we got this Nordic track bike recently. So that's uh, my new four-way, four-way, but nothing on the roads. You know, I'm steering clear of that for now. Um, so Greg, maybe we'll hand it over to you to, uh, get into the discussion and the real topic of today. Sure. So today we're talking about alternatives and I guess from the top, so many people have different definitions of what an alternative investment is. 
First of all, we know that there are two main types of investments. Uh, most investors are invested in bonds and stocks. And so the very broad definition alternative is anything other than a bond or a stock. But I think what we'll find out in this in, in our discussion today that there are also a lot of alternatives within bonds and stocks. Many of you are probably familiar with uh, some of the other alternatives. Um, a lot of people are invested in real estate through REITs. Um, they're invested in commodities through gold ETFs and silver ETFs and that sort of thing. Um, currencies now, I know, I know people can trade currencies on some of these online platforms. Um, so that's really what an alternative in its basic definition is. Um, but we also at Water Island Capital, we do go through uh, other definitions. And, and one of the things that we look for in alternatives is we look for, not to use the word alternative, but we look for a different type of return profile that is independent of the market. And we like to call that idiosyncratic. And that simply means that the investments uh, that we have, really they walk to their own beat. Um, they're, they're somewhat independent of market moves. And as long as these events or catalysts that we'll talk about go through, then we should be able to attain or achieve our return. So that's really how we look at things. Um, like I said, later on, I can certainly get into a um, little bit of the nuts and bolts about what we do, um, but that's it in a nutshell. Nicely done. Uh, Jeremiah, any, anything to add about how you guys view alternatives? Yeah, I think we take a similar, but maybe different view, right, Steve, as, as uh, advisors to end clients, the retail investor. I mean, I, I, academically, right, I look at, I define an alternative as something that can bend that efficient frontier, right? So you got you got bonds as the, the anchor in the portfolio and the stocks as the return generator. And somewhere in between, uh, there's ways to add diversification uh, with stuff that's not correlated and bend that efficient frontier. So kind of take that academic approach. And it, to me, there's, all, there's like uh, Greg mentioned, there's a lot of different alternatives, but you have to define for a portfolio, what are you trying to solve for? Are you trying to solve for a different return profile? Are you trying to solve for a dis different risk profile? And does what you're investing in as an alternative, what you're defining as, as an alternative, actually deliver that? Um, you need to be clear on that if you're running, if you're doing a strategy in a portfolio. And then it also needs to translate to the to the client level because um, different client different clients have different risk profiles, return expectations, etc. Yeah, I, don't know. I know, Steve, you, you probably use a, a few more alternatives in your client portfolios than, than we do in our offices. So uh, how do you guys kind of look at it? Yeah, I'd say similar. You, you both touched on uh, a lot of things that I like. Uh, I would say broadly that they're just other investments that should do something different than what we can accomplish in the traditional markets. You know, Greg talked about things that are idiosyncratic, right? Different sort of risk, um, different return profiles, maybe different income. Um, and like you're saying too, the the goal within a given portfolio can really drive alternatives or investments that are appropriate for that and the attributes that you're seeking, which then you hopefully can actually achieve. So I think all of that is a really nice summation of you know, what alternatives are, are designed to do and how we use them. So fully agree with both of you. Yeah, and I, I would just add that you can throw everything in the alternatives bucket, but in my opinion, there's good alternatives. And there's alternatives behaving badly, right? It's doing, let's say it's doing something different and maybe it's just going down. That's not a good <laughs> difference, right? We need to be clear that there's a there's a good alternative and there's a bad alternative. Right. 
Yeah, good, different, right? Good, different, not bad, different. <laughs> and, and I'll yeah, take that a step further and just say, there are things that are often referred to as alternatives because they don't fit neatly in the stock or bond box. But for me, they're not really alternatives because they're not going to help us increase our, our income or return at the same time of, of decreasing volatility, which is you know, pretty common among the attributes we want out of alternatives. So some examples like that may be like um, publicly traded REITs, which can look very much like equities and even be more volatile than equities in a, in a general sense, right? These are not things you're going to put in your portfolio and then and then dampen risk or or do what you think comes with that alternatives bucket um, in the in the sense that I use it. Yeah, I throw I throw like hedged equity strategies in there too because I look at Fair. these have been popular lately. Uh, so I'll look at like the return profile of a hedged equity strategy, daily returns. And you can marry that up with a 60-40 portfolio and it looks exactly the same. It may be for a specific client, if it's it's functioning an alternative as that I couldn't get them into equities, but the alternative is they get hedged equity, that's better than not being equities at least. Um, but if you already have stocks and bonds in a 60-40 portfolio, hedged equity strategy isn't really giving you any diversification. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. That's commonly the case. I mean, everybody's made some really good points. I think the thing that is important about alternatives or, or frankly, any, any type of strategy or investment is really, it's good to have an expectation of, of as Jeremiah said, of, of what that's contributing to your portfolio, whether it's low volatility, high return, a mix of both. But also, I think it's important to, to have an expectation about what that fund is going to do in, in a particular market. Because even though you have an alternative, it can certainly, like Steve pointed out, it can have an extreme amount of volatility. And what is that really contributing? Is it excess return? Is it just increasing volatility in your portfolio? So I, I think the approach that, that we take is, is, is our firm, we, we really have, I would say, a capital preservation mandate. And so when people look at our funds, they're really looking at lower volatility. They're looking at lower correlation but I think in a lot of cases, they're looking at really markets that are challenging. Um, could be a market like we have now where you have rising interest rates. Could be something like a year ago uh, when COVID first hit. It could be 2008. So those are the types of situations, I think, where we address all the risks in our portfolio and we like to perform well, relatively well, certainly, in those environments. Um, and, and that's really our subset of, of alternatives and how we, how we deliver, deliver that to clients. So when we do talk to clients... We're not promising them these insanely high returns. We're really just saying, look, we're, we're trying to deliver to you steadiness and some predictability and so that you can factor that into your own portfolios. And that, that's really how we approach it. Yeah, it makes sense. And, you know, a good point about touching on markets as well as kind of the things that you solve for within portfolios. We'll see many different markets and many different market cycles over the course of our lives and over the course of our clients' lives. In the alternative sense, you're looking for consistency through these cycles, things that can be additive in terms of value to your portfolio, kind of in and out of the ups and downs. And at the same time, no one cares about diversification for diversification's sake, right? If I get you a zero return and say your portfolio is well diversified, well, then you're not going to be very happy with me. Same as if I put you in a bad different alternative like Jeremiah was talking about earlier, right? And kind of speaking on on that market topic and where we are in cycles, at the same time, you know, you can't just set it and forget it. We do have strategic allocations for clients, but now is a, in my mind, realistically different time frame in which we have to kind of rethink our portfolios. And that's a large part of what's driven today's conversation and why we got together. If if you pay attention to news at all, you probably notice that interest rates are 
at 40 year lows, um, generally speaking, it's tough to earn an income in a portfolio these days. And so especially on the fixed income side, we're looking at ways to drive income that may be less traditional, but but still reliable. And um, that's really what's brought us here today. And um, happy to have you guys add, you know, whatever you'd like to that. I mean, so you brought up fixed income and interest rates, and I, I agree with you. That's, to me, what is really driving our interest and my interest in alternatives specifically now, because I don't think I can emphasize enough that fixed income is just going to be very different over the next 10 years than it was the last 40 years, like you pointed out, Steve. It was the portfolio insurance that you were getting paid to have, right? You, you bought the house and then you wanted insurance and they're like, oh yeah, you can have insurance and we'll give you money to have insurance. Well, that's great. Now that's not the case. The extreme argument is, well, okay, we'll just forget fixed income, right? Let's just go into alternatives. I don't think you can take that approach. I was listening to a presentation at our Hightower Investment Forum recently, and, and one of the speakers made the analogy, so I won't take full credit for this, but he said, when you're starting a cross-country road trip, you don't look up at the blue skies on day one and decide you don't need any insurance, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just, you have to figure out how much are you comfortable having and now how much are you willing to pay for it? Uh, and that's, again, at the client level, a conversation that you need to have about risk appetite and return expectations, which can be very challenging. We just had a client the other day that filled out a form and they said, look, I expect seven to 10% returns. And then a separate question, at what point would you be comfortable, uncomfortable with your portfolio being down? And the answer was 10%. Well, I mean, that's like, okay. <laughs> you need to have a conversation about being a little bit re more realistic about your, your return and risk uh, expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we've, you know, quick shout out to our team at the Bonson Group, um, which is what I'm part of. Um, we have gone so far as to recontextualize this uh, in the portfolio sense over the past year and, and gone, you know, a dedicated effort, which we've deemed Operation Magnify, account by account, client by client, and, and rethinking this, especially the traditional fixed income. Does it still make sense in the amount uh, that we may have had previously in a portfolio? Should some of it be reworked toward alternatives, some of it um, even to strategies like dividend growth equity, which is a big philosophy of ours near and dear to our hearts, you know, just other places where maybe you even have to accept additional volatility than you would have in the past, but gaining comfort with the idea that maybe that is necessary to also drive your future income and returns. It's just a different world now. Yeah. Greg, I know you you focus and concentrate specifically on that sort of fixed income credit space. Can you walk us through an example of sort of a, the particular investment strategies that you guys would be using? We consider ourselves to be catalyst-driven or, or you've heard event-driven investors. And in our portfolios, we are looking at the corporate credit markets. And so we're looking at investment grade, we're looking at high yield, we're looking at convertible bonds, and we're looking at bank loans. The biggest difference is, even though those are multi-trillion dollar markets, and we may be looking at the same quote-unquote markets of traditional fixed income investors, we are choosing our investments for very different reasons. So if you take a look at our portfolio, you'll see a number of high-yield bond positions. And so the first thing is, well, why is that in our portfolio? Now, if I was a traditional high-yield investor, I would just be picking credits and saying, I think this is a great investment for the next five years or seven years, and I can clip a five or 6% coupon. 
and that's great. But the problem is X defaults is that it's still going to exhibit some market beta. So if there's a massive high yield sell-off like a year ago when high yield was down 25, 30%, well, then we have to face that. And, and that, that is volatility that the investors have to, have to endure. So what we do that's different is we look for specific catalysts and events within those markets. And the whole thesis or the theme behind what we do is we're looking to choose those investments and generate returns that are based on the timelines and the outcomes of those specific catalysts and events. So when I talk about different types of events, um, one of the things that we do, um, really it's, it's core to our, our, our firm and really to the strategy, is, is we look at a lot of mergers, acquisitions, and spinoffs and the like. And these corporate actions, mergers, for example, what we do here is when a deal is announced, and, and, and I'll use, I guess, about, uh, this is a deal that closed about a month ago. Um, Apollo, the, the private equity firm, made a, a cash bid for Michael Stores. And we know Michael Stores from the, the arts and crafts stores that you see in strip malls and the like. And, and I guess during COVID, uh, when that hit, uh, these stores had done extremely well online and so forth. So uh, for whatever reason, Apollo made a bid for the company. Uh, the company agreed to be taken private. And there's two sides to the trade here. On the equity side, um, we have a group at our firm and, and a lot of other firms out there um, called uh, merger arbitrageurs or, or merger arb specialists. And what they do is they look at the equity predominantly. The idea here is if there's a $35 cash bid for the company on the day that the announcement occurs, that, that stock may trade up to, let's say, 34 So their job is to really capture that last $1 spread. And what they will pay for that spread is really based on the timeline of that deal closing, the risk of it not closing, upside, downside, um, very traditionally. What we do on the fixed income side is when a deal like Michael Stores, when they have debt outstanding, we do that same type of, uh, of operation or that same, same attack, but we're looking at the debt side of the balance sheet. And in Michael Stores' cases, once that deal was announced, we asked the question, well, what's going to happen to Michael Storr's debt? Now, they may have had a 2026 or a 2028 bond, which looks like a long duration bond and something that I think we would all agree if there was no deal, it would be subject to beta and, and market risk and so forth. But what we do is we try to assess what's going to happen to that debt. And in the case here, we saw that Michael Storr's debt was going to be redeemed or needed to be redeemed um, to get this transaction to go through. So what we do is we purchase sometimes longer dated debt, but it's actually short maturity debt. It's really a yield to event or a yield to call piece of paper. So in this case, we may, it may have bought a five-year high yield bond, but in essence, it was a six-year bond, even less. It was about a four-month bond that we that we held. So what did we get from that? We we got a we got a yield component to it. So we're clipping coupon during the holding period. Um, we're eliminating for the most part credit risk and interest rate risk. And we're able to capture a spread um, that is really short duration. And as long as that deal closes, it really doesn't matter what's going on in the fixed income markets. Um, so not only do we do that with mergers and acquisitions, but we do have a broader mandate where we can look at things like uh, in this market, there might be asset sales where a company will have to use proceeds to redeem their debt. We can look at, I know a lot of people have talked about things like SPACs. Um, that's a whole nother conversation for the equity side. We'll look at those transactions just to see if a SPAC uh, deal is announced and there's debt outstanding at the target company, uh, what's going to happen to that? And so we, we take that same approach as we would with a merger or an acquisition. We assess what happens to the debt. And what we like to see is, is really a short duration portfolio that if everything works out, 
Um, we're going to generate those returns that are based on really the, the, the timelines of, of closing that deal. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. And, uh, you know, for, I guess for all blend blog and podcast in particular, it's, it's interesting to have um, someone who really is in the space on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, talking about these, these deals and activities at such a granular level. So hopefully a different perspective for, for my listeners. Um, yeah. It's all, always fascinating for, for us as well to, to hear about, cause you're playing in liquid, the same liquid markets, right? In the bond markets, or if you're in the, the equity ARB strategy in the equity markets, you're, you're trading the same securities, but uh, you're taking a very different approach and looking at various nuances in those spaces than your traditional market participants. Yeah, that's right. Ag- agreed. And, and completely changing the risk profile to Jeremiah's point. So, you know, you kind yeah. of hashed it out like, yes, on the surface, I'm holding a longer dated bond and it may be high yield, maybe questionable credit, all these things, but you're also solving for those risks through the structure of the trade itself. And, and completely transforming what that risk profile is, what the income profile is, what the kind of upside, downside of the situation is. So what's, what's also interesting is, so uh, I, I've been doing these types of investments for virtually my whole career, whether it was through merger arbitrage or convertible arbitrage or uh, high yield bonds, whatever it might be. But when we were launching this fund that's about 10 years ago, we've, we've been running the strategy here at the firm for about 10 years. And when we would sit down with investors and we would explain it, they said, wow, that makes a lot of sense, but you know, show me the numbers. And of course, when you don't have your track record, you really need some time to, to, to show that the strategy works. And so if you really look at our returns and you go through periods like the taper tantrum, um, you go through, I guess, 2014, 2015, you know, the high yield markets really hit hard uh, where we had commodities selling off. We had, I think, high yield during those times were you know, down 15 to 20%. Um, and then other periods last year during COVID, I think uh, post 2016 election, uh, when longer dated the aggregate bond types of products really got hit, interest rates went up. If you look at all those periods, you'll see that the fund did pretty well. Uh, in a lot of those quarters, we were positive. And in the quarters where the market was really down uh, dramatically, like with COVID last year, you know, during that quarter, we were down 5%. But if we were in a high yield portfolio, we probably would have been down north of 20%. But what we did during that period is because we had that lower correlation because we were tied to these events. And yes, some of those things did sell off because there was there were a lot of people liquidating and so forth. Um, we were really in a, in a strong position, I think, at that point um, through our positions, but also through some of the hedging that we do in the portfolio. And I think the important thing is, is to look and say, you know, how do we get out to the other side? Um, okay, we're down 5%. You know, what does it look like in two months from now, three months from now, six months from now? And I think because of the nature of the portfolio, we were looking at very short dated events that snapped back relatively quickly. And at the same time, we were able to pick some really, you know, frankly, some investments that, that you just don't see very often because of the dramatic sell-off. And so you know, we were able to rebound you know, nicely the next month or two. Um, and then through the end of the year, um, we recouped that and Ended up returning, you know, just about six six point seven or six point seven five percent or something. So, I think that was that was uh, it. Really demonstrated that the strategy can work. I think it does work if it's if it's done in the right way. So that's just a little extra color, but it takes time. To, I think to introduce investors to it to show 
um, how it performs uh, over various market cycles um, when certain events hit. Um, but now the data is there and, and, and it's good to see. And, and one of the things we do is, yes, we look at the data, but then we also continue to look at, okay, are there better ways to do it? Can we hedge better? Can we select names better? But that's, that's a whole nother topic. Really good insights there. That all being said, and, and we've kind of touched on it being almost all weather, right? It is something that we want to work in kind of all environments. Is there an ideal environment though? If you could pick and choose, and I don't know what the parameters would be um, for, the, for a strategy like this to really shine, uh, what would that be? Um, I'd, I'd say probably the best market would be when interest rates and credit spreads are just benign. They're not moving one way or another but you see a lot of deal flow. That means there's a lot of mergers that are announced. You see a lot of uh, diversification from the standpoint of you see mergers, acquisitions, spinoffs, SPAC deals. So not unlike what we've seen in the last year from that perspective, except now we're challenged by interest rates. Um, but the best environment would be really what we've had over the last years coming out of COVID <clears throat> with, with respect to the number of deals announced, the types of deals announced, um, refinancings that have been going on. Um, those have all been tailwinds for the strategy. So that would be the best really environment for us. And then, like I said, you know, we're currently, we have that one tailwind, but then the headwind, not so much for our strategy, but for the market in general is, is certainly interest rates. And that, to me, that, that really presents more opportunities because one of the things that, that, that we'll do, and, and I've been doing this more recently as, as rates have been spiking up at year end, we just took the approach that it could be 2021 could be the year that rates are going up. And so we just felt let's stay in things that are tight. Let's stay short duration. There's no reason to go out uh, on the limb. And even from a standpoint of there might be a merger deal, a utility deal or something that won't close for 12, 12 months. Well, those, those are still subject to some duration risk. Mm -hmm. And so during that period, we just said, let's wait, let's, let's wait. And if rates should, should rise, then let's at least get compensated for it. And uh, there were a couple of names that were announced recently. Um, and over two weeks, when, when rates rose, uh, really over the last two weeks, um, those names came in about a point, which doesn't sound significant, but you're talking about going from a 3% investment up to you know, a 5% investment. Nothing dramatic, nothing sexy, but um, we're now capturing stuff that's closer to that 5% for very, very low risk. Um, so that's really how we will look at this type of environment. Um, like I said, we're not playing for for interest rates or anything like that, but we're I'd say we're risk aware, and, and that just gives us the the I think the reason to be patient. Got it. And one other thought that came to mind, maybe is useful for the for the listeners, is it's kind of implied in everything that you've said, but it's worth mentioning is this idea of in a normal trade, you have to get two things right, or at least two things right, but your your entry point and then your exit point, and with strategies like this you structure the trade from the get-go and then the ending is the event, right? That, that you're just typically taken out of the trade and it's not your decision to, to um, right. have to figure out that endpoint. That's a great question. Um, Cause a lot of people will say, okay, that's great. You, you, you buy this bond, but then you have to sell it. And what if the market is trading down at that time? Well, our investments are what we call corporate actions and a corporate action just means that the company will give you funds and they'll redeem the bonds. So it's almost like envision that, that you have a stock. Right now, uh, Microsoft is in the process of acquiring Nuon, uh, N-U-A-N, Nuance uh, Communications. They do voice recognition software. And if you had had Nuon in your portfolio, if this deal goes through at year end, 
you, and you have shares of Nuon, well, all of a sudden one day that deal is going to close and your 500 shares of Nuon disappears, but you all, all of a sudden have cash in your account. That's It's just something that, that happens on the back end. It's a corporate action. And that's exactly what happens um, with our bond portfolios. There's no need to take market action. We just We just wait. A notice of redemption is sent out and our bonds are just delivered to the company and they deliver cash to us. So on the back end, there, there's very little risk uh, of needing to sell into the market. So but that's a really good, really good, uh, really good point, Steve. Yeah, thanks for the additional insights. And um, kind of broadening the scope again, Jeremiah, maybe I'll throw it over to you. What are what are things that from an advisory standpoint, investors should keep in mind when we're when we're talking about alts more broadly? I mean, we talked about some of the characteristics earlier, but but I'm thinking more of kind of portfolio considerations. Yeah, usually the conversations we're having with clients and our average client size is let's say it's two and a half million dollars. So not necessarily a lot of experience with alternatives. So it's talking about perhaps the tax implications, right? If you got a K1 associated with what you're investing in, the liquidity differences. Um, now, if you're doing alternatives in a mutual fund structure, you're still daily liquid. But if you're going into private offerings, right, um, you might not be liquid for 10 plus years. So understanding that is important. I think the biggest thing with our clients is education. And we, we've kind of touched on this. You need to be clear as to what what is the goal of having alternatives for the client? Are, are you allocating some of your fixed income money into something that you expect to be a lower volatility, but still provide you some return profile? Or are you going out of your equities into private equity space where your, your, your goal is higher returns or maybe similar returns, but less correlation to the equity markets and making making sure that everybody's on the same page as to what's the goal for your portfolio as to why we're using this specific investment and then having expectations uh, that are appropriate. So I mentioned good alternatives and bad alternatives. Sometimes there's alternatives behaving badly. And I'll say those are alternatives where you expect them to do one thing and then they do another. Mm -hmm. I never like that because you need to have expectations and you put them you'll put an alternative in a portfolio for a specific reason. And when it doesn't match that reasoning, uh, that's not a healthy, that's not a good conversation that you want to have with a client at the end of the day. Um, one of the, I'll give you an example of an alternative behaving badly, and this could probably be a whole nother podcast, but I'm personally not a fan of gold and I struggle with commodities. Um, gold people think, okay, that's, that's the equity equity hedge, right? Well, if you go back in history and look at like one year periods or calendar periods, sometimes the correlation is one to equities, sometimes it's negative one. So I can't, it's hard in the context of a portfolio to know what, how the gold is going to behave. Yep. So I simply avoid it. Others may disagree, but that's kind of the approach because to me, that's an alternative behaving badly because it's not doing what I expect it to do. Yeah, great, great point. And maybe I'll try and tie this all together and, and use. Uh, Greg's strategy as an example, thinking in a portfolio context, you know, something like this credit arbitrage, again, with the attributes of, I can get some income, I expect relative stability, and some reasonable returns, let's call it more than what traditional fixed income provides now, less probably than equities will provide over the long term. You know, where does that fit? And to give you a sense, I, I think it fits in a few different places, but it's all situation specific. You know, you could think of it as 
for me, you know, a more attractive piece of what used to be your traditional fixed income allocation, right? If I'm going to hold that for the long term, because I think the risk reward will, will benefit us. It could be a component of some sort of, you know, broader medium term, if you will, cash kind of allocation, right? Where you want to have back to Greg's original point, all these different idiosyncratic risks to create a more stable overall profile. You know, this is an example of idiosyncratic risks, event-related risks, very different than what's happening in the markets that you can put into that situation. And then another place, like I, I think personally, where I like to use this is for capital calls. So, you know, quick background for listeners, but when you go into certain alternative investments, you may commit up front and then from time to time, they will ask you for the money that you told them you would give them. You have to put that money somewhere, but know that you're going to need it at some point, right? So it's a little bit tricky. Well, this is the way I think, again, relatively stable and earning some income in return along the way. And it still sits in your alternative bucket. So when they, they come asking for their money, they call the capital, you're, you're simply taking one kind of alternative, exchanging into this other one. Um, and I've, I've had to play a good role there. So, um, yeah, we've used it specifically. We added it. Um, we built in the last year or so a, what we called a short duration income model for so it's for that money like you're talking about for capital calls. Maybe it's they're going to buy a house or whatever. So it's that one to two year cash bucket. Um, you pair it with some shorter duration like traditional investment grade corporates, but this is giving you a different risk return profile. And it's also been a way for us to start introducing more liquid alternatives to clients because you. you to Greg's point earlier, they need a track record, right? Before you can kind of sell it. So they need to have some experience with it and maybe a small cash bucket to get them comfortable with. Yeah. Okay. This is different, but I can get a reasonable return with a pretty low risk profile over time. And then you can start to weave in more, more, uh, maybe different alternatives, not gold though. (laughs) <laughs> so to, so to, to toot Greg's horn a little bit, this falls in the good different uh, bucket, right? And, and has some. Yeah, Greg's the good different. He's not the alternative behaving badly. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's I'll that's take the it. takeaway from this podcast. Greg's the good alternative. <laughs> I'll take I'll take that. Fantastic. Um, I I think with that we should we should wrap it up unless uh, anyone wants to add anything further. No, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Greg. Yeah. Thank you both for your time and uh, have a great day. You too. Take care, Steve.